are Corey Hay interviewing Mark Fleischman about his new book, Inside Studio 54. So Mark, I'm sitting here in New York City and you're in Los Angeles, but it occurs to me that weren't you born on the East Coast in New York? I was born in New York and I used to live through snowstorms and what you're going through now. Well, speaking of snowstorms, you had a lot of coke storms at Studio 54. Um, how did you go from naval officer to disco kingpin? Well, it didn't happen overnight, but um, I was a naval officer and then I went into the hotel business and took over a number of bankrupt hotels. And in the process, I took over a hotel in St. Thomas, the Virgin Isle Hotel, which was closed. And it was the old Virgin Isle Hilton. And um, to give it some oomph, I ended up uh, opening a franchise of Studio 54. And I started negotiating for that franchise. It's all in the book. I started negotiating for that franchise uh, while Studio was still open. And then all of a sudden, the boys were in jail. I didn't know that was happening. And um, I had to go to jail to finish the negotiation for the franchise. And then one thing led to another, and uh, I ended up buying Studio 54. What did it cost to buy the club? Well, no money down. Um, actually, a half a million dollars down. But uh, that all went to the state of New York for back taxes. So uh, uh, Steve and Ian got nothing on the sale, uh, and we had to pay $500,000 in uh, their back taxes. Otherwise, I, New York, otherwise, New York State wouldn't release the lien. I thought the legend was that in addition to that paying off the lien, that you gave um, Ian Schrager the Morgan Hotel. Is that a fantasy? Well, it didn't happen quite that way. Uh, some years later, um, what happened was uh, we also had a non-compete agreement with them, and we were way behind on payments because uh, just because. Um, well, wait, you said it cost you $500,000 and went to the state of New York, but then you had a series of payments that you had to pay the boys? Yeah, we had to make some payments to them, yes. So yeah. what was the real price of Five hundred thousand to the state of New York, but that was part of the deal. How well, much the, did you pay, or how much were you supposed to pay that you didn't pay? Over time, the real price was about three million dollars. Still a bargain, right? It was a bargain. How many millions of dollars did you make at Studio Fifty Four? Did you personally make? What was your profit? You know, I oh, don't. I oh. don't remember exactly, but um, I remember one year we made almost a million dollars. And how many years did you have the club? About three. About three. A little, a little over three. And then I sold it. So did you, is it true that um, Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager, the original owners and founders of Studio 54, hit over a million dollars in cash in the ceiling? Yes, that was true. And How much of it did you get? The cash? I didn't get any. <laughs> That's too uh, bad. That's why they went to jail, and I didn't feel like uh, I, well, I met with them in jail, and it was very unpleasant. And it, uh, so I made it a point to declare our uh, 
our revenues and uh, and not evade taxes. Is it true that they still try to exercise control, much like mafia kingpins do from jail, and still run Studio 54 by giving you directions from jail? Um, the timing is off a little bit. They got out of jail before we reopened. And uh, they were giving me advice, and it wasn't, it wasn't directives. It wasn't mafia-type directives. It's just that I was seeking advice because uh, they were experienced at it, at it, and I had never owned a, a club that held 2,000 people in New York City. Did you feel by talking with them during this period that they had regrets, regrets for losing Studio 54? They had regrets. There's no question. When I was visiting with them in jail, both in Alabama and New York City, uh, they both had regrets. They wished that they had uh, done it differently. Basically, uh, the reason they got busted is because Steve gave stupid interviews saying we make more money than the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> and had, had he not done that, they probably wouldn't have picked up, picked up on it. When you look back, do you wish you hadn't done it? I mean, don't forget you, you came in a naval officer, you came in a businessman successful, and you went out a drug-addled mess. Did you have regrets, or was it all worth it as you look back? Well, when I look back, it was the most fun I've ever had and uh, during the better years. And uh, when, when the drugs got me down, uh, that's basically when I sold it. And um, I ended up at Betty Ford and then rejuvenated myself uh, at Rancho La Puerta um, and came up with new ideas about how to do what I know how to do and ended up owning, opening Tattoo. So it didn't knock me out completely. As a matter of fact, it, it taught me how to open a nightclub. So how to, how to publicize a nightclub and, and tattoo got an enormous amount of press, as you know. I do. <laughs> I think I might have had a hand in that. Um, Mark, you said that so you, you became a drug addict and a sex addict. Is that correct? Do you chronicle this in the book? Yes. And then you went to Betty Ford after a family intervention. Yes. But you left. You escaped. Well, I, left Bet I left Betty Ford after five weeks, uh, not staying the full six. And I didn't feel that Betty Ford uh, offered me any brand new insights. Uh, and it was sort of a feeling. And I, I ended up uh, going back to uh, alcohol again, uh, wanting to be high. And finally, some Paul Jabara, as a matter of fact, the... Uh, Oscar-winning songwriter. Oscar-winning songwriter who did Enough is Enough and Last Dance and et cetera. Um, suggested a place called Rancho La Puerta. And Where's the that? Time, there was no internet or anything, and so I called the ranch, and and uh, and they sent me a brochure in the, in the mail, and uh, it sounded good to me, so I picked up the phone and made a reservation and went there and I went for a week and stayed for two, and it changed my life. So isn't this the famous spa founded by 
Deborah and Edmund Saclay? Yes, it is. <laughs> and it's still there, isn't it? I think it's the oldest farm. It's, it's still there, and I've gone many times since. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, in my current incarnation of my life, uh, where my wife and I, where Mimi and I own the bar methods in many in Southern California, um, we made a deal and we bring the bar method to Rancho La Puerta. What made Rancho La Porta, which I believe is a health spa, organic driven, uh, what made that work for you? Would you, would you suggest that for other people to find their new lives after dark periods in their life? Yeah, I would. Um, because uh, at Betty Ford, it was all conversational uh, kind of rehab. And, and uh, the fact that I really believe that there's a physical aspect of this, uh, of, the, of the rehab that uh, I accidentally got at Rancho La Puerta. It's not a rehab center, but I believe that it's a place where people could and should rehab themselves. And because if you can feel high on life, what happens at the ranch, um, you eat organic food and you go on early morning hikes and somehow or other you feel so good uh, that you can exist without drugs. Now, didn't you write part of the book at Rancho La Puerta as well? I wrote most of the book at Rancho La Puerta. Well, what the hell took you so long to write this book, Mark? It's the 40th anniversary of Studio 54's opening. That means it took you 40 long years. That's four decades. Why did it take so long to tell all your darkest secrets? Well, um, I was at the ranch in 2010. And, you know, when you're sitting at tables there, uh, you people, strangers talk to you and talk about why you went there first. And, and I told them the story of Studio 54 and what it did for me being at the ranch in that was 1990 1987 I think and uh, they said wow what a story you should write a book and it kept coming up that I should write a book and so in 2010 I started to outline my life and the book is more than just studio 54 it's how I went from being a naval officer to uh, where I went to college and my experiences there, but it's mostly Studio 54, obviously. The name well, of the book. Well, a lot of this book is salacious. It is scandalous. You are telling the deep, dark drug secrets of the stars. You've got Belushi freebasing. You've got De Niro locked in the bathroom with a pound of coke. You've got, you know, Liza snipping up. I mean, it's really. You know, Lawrence of Arabia, of all people, uh, you know, a, a coke fiend. So how did you get this stuff past the lawyers? This is a fast read, a quick read. Can't wait to read every page. It's juicy stuff. Well, you know, I went to the lawyers to get my insurance policy. And um, I never specifically, Belushi is dead and so is Robin Williams and and they said, if somebody is dead, you can write what you need to write. You mean write the truth? As long as it's as long as it's true. I didn't make anything up. Um, 
but I did not have Liza Minnelli directly doing cocaine. I just said that something about the fact that uh, she uh, overdid her life and uh, ended up at the Betty Ford Center as well. And I didn't say specifically that uh, uh, Robert De Niro, uh, I, I said he locked himself in the bathroom, but uh, and but I didn't talk about the pound of cocaine that you, you just mentioned. Uh, I guess you're saying that the lawyers took a red pen to this book. They did, and uh, they allowed me to do it, and I got my insurance policy. Ian Schrager who we all know founded Studio 54 with Steve Rebell, wrote his own book, came out this year. Very fancy, glossy, coffee table book. I think he famously said, there are more drugs at Shea Stadium than there were in studio. I think everybody almost choked. Uh, but what makes your book so different from his? Did you read his book? What did you think of his book? Draw the comparison. I read his book, I looked at the pictures, and I read a lot of the uh, commentary. And um, his book mostly talks about the how one uh, produces a major event and a party, and, and uh, they produce wonderful parties, and uh, I took over and produced wonderful parties as well. Talk about like Halloween and um, theme parties. and. Most of his book is about theme parties, and certainly he doesn't touch on the drugs. And my book is the Inside Studio 54 story. That's how we got the name. It's the real story of what happened. Uh, and it happened in his life, too. Uh, I guess if Steve Rubell wrote the book, it would be a different book than Ian Schrager writing the book. But uh, uh, they avoided talking about drugs at all. And in an, in an, you're talking about the Yankee Stadium quote. In an interview, uh, he said, I forgot where the interview was, but he made a comment, and it was printed once or twice, that there were more drugs in Yankee Stadium than there were at Studio 54. And he said the whole drug thing was overblown. But that's not true. It was not overblown. So let's tell the truth. Were there as many people doing lines and having sex in the rubber room in the basement as legend has it? Well, they were having sex all over in the balcony, in the rubber room, um, and they were doing lines on the bars, and uh, it was all over. Uh, the free lines were given out in my office. I didn't run a, a basement operation like Steve Rubell did, but... Um, uh, celebrities came up to the office and there was actually, uh, I had an assistant who uh, sometimes you'd have to lay out 20 or 30 lines and t it takes a long time unless you want to just blow the whole thing on a table. <laughs> so, uh, I had somebody doing the lines, li laying out the lines for me. Now, did you really have two kinds of Coke, the good Coke for you and your lovers and the mediocre Coke? The other people? I did. I, I got it up from St. Thomas, the Virgin Islands, where uh, I told you I had a hotel and uh, you can freely move back and forth into the United States without going through customs. And so I had the good Coke and uh, I couldn't wait. It was so much trouble to get it. I couldn't waste it on uh, just plain old folks. And so the good Coke 
was separated from the other Coke, and the other Coke we, we cut. I forgot what we cut it with, but we cut it with something. Where were the cops? I mean, nowadays they bust you for smoking. I mean, they close you down for overcrowding. Where were the police during this coke sniffing, sex having, rubber room <laughs> orgy of fun? The cops, um, the, there was a police precinct about one block away on 54th Street between 9th and 10th, I think, or 8th and 9th. And, um, and uh, they would come off duty and we would let them in and we would take care of them with, you know, free champagne or something. And uh, kids or something. Well, they left us alone. We didn't, we didn't give them cocaine. We gave them free drinks. Free drinks. Well, you know, those cops and the donuts. Uh, who was the wildest acting celebrity that ever went to Studio 54? Was it Robin Williams? Was it John Belushi? Was it Rick? John Belushi and Robin Williams were both wild. Well, what, what, what do you mean wild? What does that mean? Wildly funny, wildly dressed. Well, they were both wildly funny, and uh, they were both, uh, and Rick James also, uh, not wildly funny, but uh, wild, period. Um, Describe wild. Like, what did wild, John do? Wild in some cases were funny, and wild in other cases were doing drugs publicly. Well, wait, wait, what kind of drugs was John Cocaine, Belushi? cocaine, cocaine. I mean, no, they did quaaludes as well, but nobody knew, you know, you didn't see somebody pop a pill, but uh, you could see people were laying out a line or two or for friends and, and they were sniffing cocaine. And so Robin Williams, who famously and sadly died of depression, um, you're saying he was a coke fiend. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was a fiend, and I, I understand that he was rehabbed, but, uh, I, you know, the, the depression is something else. He wasn't depressed when I saw him. Well, not on that lack coke. Um, so let's talk about the most boring person that ever went to Studio 54, and I think you said that was President Donald Trump. Donald Trump was certainly the most boring. Uh, he would walk in and walk around and look at women and uh, not drink and not do coke and not do whatever and not dance and not do what everybody else was doing. And but he I, still went because everybody went. He went. He went and, and he went to a number of celebrity parties and uh, he'd like to be invited to celebrity parties and he wanted to get his name in the paper, obviously. And um, he was a Roy Cohn. We, we did a number of birthday parties for Roy Cohn and Donald Trump was uh, his client and and Donald was always there for a Roy Cohn event. But he was good. He was a good boy. Did you see him, you know, uh, meeting women? Is that he came with a, he, I didn't. He may have been taking names, but uh, he was with Ivana. Ah, well, there's a woman. I don't think Ivana would have uh, put up with him. Uh, <laughs> Probably not. Was Alec Baldwin. Oh, Alec Baldwin. Was that terrific impersonation of President Trump. Was he really a busboy in those little short shorts? 
Yeah, he, he was a busboy, but that was actually before me. And was isn't there a there famous there. story that he used to get so horny watching all the sex he had to quit? That's a story that I repeated. The story is that he saw so much sex and it made him so horny he couldn't stand there, so he ended up quitting the job. <laughs> Mark, when did you realize you'd become addicted to sex and drugs? Um, it didn't, uh, the word addicted is the thing. I, I knew that I liked it from day one, but uh, I became addicted by year number three, year number two and year number three. And then I couldn't live without the coke. And the addiction thing was strange because I would want more coke and it wouldn't make me feel good. And it wasn't conducive to having sex. And, th and then I began to dislike being at Studio 54 and uh, entertaining all those people and having all that pressure on me. And that's when I um, realized that uh, it was time to sell and time to get out. And then I became depressed, um, which I describe in the book. And, uh, and that's when I uh, first went to Betty Ford and that's when I uh, went on to Rancho La Puerta and then rekindled my life. Well, let's talk about the good times. Tell me about the night that you were giving a party for an opening at Studio Before in your famous penthouse in the Morgan Hotel. And Robert De Niro locked himself in the bathroom with a bunch of uh, champagne. Well, that, that was the opening night. That was our reopening night of Studio 54. And uh, it turned out I couldn't make it to that party because I was at Studio and I was going to take a cab or limousine down to the party. And I realized the street was closed and they weren't allowing people in. And I was afraid I was not gonna get back in. So Carmen, Carmen D'Alessio hosted the party and told me all these stories, but I never actually made it back. But uh, over a period of the night, maybe four or 500 people made it to my apartment and went through it. And De Niro locked himself in the bathroom for an hour? Uh, that's what Carmen told me. Ah. Well, Bobby knows how to have a good time. Now, let's talk about Dodie Fayette, famously uh, out with Princess Diana when um, she was sadly, both of them sadly killed in Paris. Yeah. Dodie Fayette, air, billionaire. It, it was before Diana, and um, it was 1982, I think. It, it was after the movie um, Chariots of Fire, which Dodie was the executive producer of because his father put up the money. And uh, with, that, uh, with that pedigree, he was treated like a VIP and he started hanging out with Liza, um, Chris Reeves, Robin Williams. There was a whole group that used to come together and Dodie was one of them. And Dodie and I became friends and uh, I remember one trip we went down to uh, his, uh, he had a penthouse condo in Turnberry Island in Florida. And we went down there for before New Year's and we were supposed to be back for a New Year's Eve party. And uh, I got involved 
Dodie was uh, also into a lot of coke, and we got very high on his private plane on the way home, and uh, really lost it. And I forgot I forgot all about studio and my date. I had a date with Lori Lister for New Year's Eve, and I forgot all about it, and ended up uh, sleeping with three stewardesses. Orgy in the air. In the air, and then later at the Plaza Hotel at, uh, in Dodie's, uh, Dodie had a suite at the Plaza. Tell us about the night Madonna came. I heard she was a diva even back then. She was a diva back then, and... Um, she was unknown, and she was going to do a, a, an act on the bridge. The bridge was uh, sort of like a stage uh, that moved back and forth over the crowd. And um, she came for a sound check in the afternoon, and she was supposed to meet uh, the guy who set it up was uh, he was a famous uh, radio DJ. I'm, 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 I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, any, anyway, she was supposed to meet him and, uh, he was late and, uh, she just started mouthing off about who the fuck does he think he is keeping me waiting like this. That's when I saw the, uh, her antics and how she became the diva. She didn't have the English accent. She was, uh, it was a real New York accent at the time. Speaking of divas, tell us about Diana Ross. She was a big fan of Studio 54. Diana Ross just came once in a while, and uh, by the time I took it over, she had already gotten married. Once somebody gets married, it's a whole new ballgame. And she couldn't come, and the antics were over for her. Well, what about Michael Jackson? He used to go. He used to come and uh, people went completely crazy when he came. Uh, he was the biggest star in the world for so many years. And he had just produced the, the uh, video Thriller, which we, we debuted on a, uh, on a big screen that we would drop. And it was, it was played in conjunction with the... Uh, with the music, which was piped right through. And people went, we, we would end up doing it three times a night, which we didn't tend to do. But uh, for Michael Jackson's Thriller, we would keep dropping the screen and playing it, and people would scream and yell, and, and Michael would come in every once in a while, and we would, we would drop the screen for him. And uh, he didn't like to be touched, and the crowds wanted to touch him. And so uh, we kept him separated on the bridge and we had to sneak him in and out. But uh, Michael was wonderful and he was really a nice guy. Was he on drugs? I, I've never known him to be on drugs. Was he bringing young boys? No, he wasn't. Who was he, he with? Was he came by himself. All alone? Well, he... He was, he was brought there in a limousine by, uh, by bodyguards, but uh, once he was inside, he was all alone. But then we, we, we took care of him, our security, and me. What's your best memory of Michael Jackson? Being on the bridge with him and having the crowd jump up and down and scream and yell, Michael, you know, and arms waving in the air. And 
the music was on, of course, at the time, and uh, and uh, I, I sort of understood what it was like to be Michael Jackson. Well, what about Prince? Prince wasn't there that often, but he, he would come, and um, Rick James was there a lot, and Prince and, and Rick didn't get along with him. And um, Prince actually used to come to my club years later at the Century Club, uh, and he would come on every Friday night. He loved uh, he loved uh, salsa music, which we played on Friday nights. And so he would come, and he'd come all by himself and sit very quietly in the back and uh, in the balcony, in the back of the balcony. And uh, I have no exciting stories about Prince. Well, I've got three last questions. First, tell me about the Dawn Patrol. Who was in it? What was it? At about um, 5 a.m., when we were more or less closing down, there were a lot of people, celebrities, who didn't want to go home and go to sleep. And uh, so we would jump into a, a couple of limousines and go down to an area that is now the meatpacking district. At the time, it was all boarded up buildings. Could have bought them for $500. And um, you'd go down the street, and the street was quiet, and everything was black, and you'd see a doorman in front, and the, you'd go in, and the door would open, and a 1,000 people, at least, were yelling and screaming and partying. And then there were levels. VIP levels of all sorts, and um, and so we would go and we would stay and party till sometimes 10 in the morning, 10, 11, 12. Uh, and when when we left, we would all be rubbing our eyes because all of a sudden we we got there in the middle of the night and we left. It was daylight and people were running to work and it was a strange circumstance. But uh, members of the people. That sort of changed all the time uh, who was there on the Dawn Patrol. But Andy Gibb, uh, Tanya Tucker, uh, Robin, Robin Williams, um, Rick James, many of the regulars. You mentioned Andy. What about Andy Warhol? Andy Warhol was shy and quiet and whatever everybody else thinks he was like. And But he was there taking pictures. And wasn't there a night when the Hells Angels came and the police stepped back because they were so afraid and one of the Hells Angels threw somebody off the balcony and stuffed somebody else in a garbage can? Can you There was there, there was such a night and uh, it uh, it was an amazing night because I forgot who talked me into doing a Hells Angels party, but uh, I did it for the opening and the premiere of the movie Hells Angels Forever. And it was on 44th Street and Broadway. And they were they had all their bikes parked there. And then the after party was at studio. And instead of going around to 8th Avenue and north on 8th, which is one way, they went north on Broadway, which was one way downtown, and they would they went uptown, and people were jumping out of the way, and taxis were moving out of the way, and police cars couldn't do anything about it. And then they got the studio, and they had to close down the block, 
uh, on 54th between Broadway and 8th. And inside studio, they caused practically a riot. They took over and everybody else couldn't deal with it. And they threw a busboy over the off the balcony, and um, and as as you just mentioned, uh, a couple of patrons were stuffed into the garbage bales. Wow! So how you know? I find a hard time understanding you know between the Hell's Angels, and then I know that Barbara Streisand, Betty Ford, Elizabeth Taylor all came. How do you? How did this mix happen? And you know yeah. what, what was Barbara and Liz? doing there? Different nights were different things. And uh, the Hells Angels were later in my career there. And uh, I never should have done it. And I was high and uh, and talked into it by one of the Hells Angels, a guy named, uh, I'm forgetting his name. But uh, he was a uh, he was a semi-celebrity in that he was a bodyguard for uh, for Liza. Well, he you was, did it. And what about Barbara Streisand? Now, what was Barbara Streisand doing at Studio 54? She wasn't a regular. She would come. She lived on the West Coast, and she would come from time to time. Calvin Klein, he was a regular. Calvin Klein was a regular. He was there almost every day, every night. And what was he like? Really nice guy. Halston, his one of his nemesis was there in the kind of end of his career doing coke in the basement. What was your opinion? What was the difference between Calvin and Halston? Uh, Halston was sort of haughty and um, Calvin was warm and real. And uh, I like Calvin very much. And uh, Halston was good to have at the time because he was a major celebrity, although uh, he lost it a few years later. The celebrities were always good because they were good for press. Grace Jones used to come quite a bit. She would come quite a bit. And did she perform at studio? You had a lot of great performances. I mean, it became a great performance space as well. Actually, Grace performed there before I owned it. and uh, But when I owned it, uh, we had major acts like the Temptations and um, the Four Tops, and uh, they were big at the time. We broke the song "It's Raining Men" with uh, dancers on the bridge. And were you there the night Mick Jagger came? I was. And it tell was, us what happened. It wasn't just one night. Mick didn't come that often, but uh, Keith and Ron Wood would be there all the time. And Mick Jagger came the night of the uh, of a particular party. I forgot which one. And he was really interested in uh, this one R&B act. And uh, he hung out in my office. And uh, nice guy, easy to deal with. Nothing happened. So, I mean, I just love the mix of people. You created this bully base of fun. So when I see that Charlton Heston came, I, my mouth drops. Um, I mean, just so far away from New York nightlife. What was Charlton Heston doing? Charlton Heston used to come to Tattoo in Beverly Hills. There's a chapter, two chapters towards the end uh, about uh, when I moved on to Beverly Hills from Tattoo, New York. 
and Chuck Heston was there all the time. And he brought uh, President Reagan there, and Nancy was there. Nancy, who didn't believe in uh, drugs, and nobody did drugs in front of her, but uh, people did it behind her back. Just say no. With this long line of celebrities coming and going through the doors you opened, what, what, what is your, when you look back, what, what is your final impression? The celebrity lifestyle and look, we're in a celebrity mad culture, celebrity here, celebrity there. It's, everything is celebrity driven on Instagram and social media. You were up close, you were really there. So do they have more fun than we do? Well, I think not. I think that uh, many of them are afraid of the press and afraid of other people. And uh, but uh, but there were times that would uh, they would let their hair down, such as when we went to uh, uh, the Dawn Patrol. We went to Crisco Disco, and uh, and there the celebrities really had fun. <laughs> and uh, when they were up in the office, they had fun. But they liked to, they wanted to be separated from the crowd. One of your old friends was someone that's just out of jail, O.J. Simpson. I used to see him at Tattoo, the club you opened subsequently after Studio 54. Um, tell us about your impressions of O.J. Do you think he did it? I do, and um, I have no proof, but um, I know what everybody else knows. And I think he did it, and I remember I was in L.A. during the uh, L.A. riots, and uh, things got so out of control that uh, people were trying to make up to the uh, black community. And I really believe that, uh, that that's why he got off. What was his behavior like? Was he a studio guy or a tattoo guy? I used to see him at tattoo regularly, actually. He was a tattoo guy. And what was his behavior like then? He used to come with uh, Nicole Simpson and uh, they were a loving couple. It was hard to believe when, when I heard that uh, he may have killed her or he killed her. Um, it was just hard to believe for me because uh, it, it didn't show when he was there. Another rocker that went on both coasts, I think, both to Tattoo and the studio was Rod Stewart. Yeah, Rod was there all the time. I forgot all about Rod and I didn't even mention him in the book, but uh, he was there regularly. And, and doing what? Wild and crazy or... No, he was not. He was there with Alana, and um, he uh, he liked to come up to the office, and he wanted to. He always did co cocaine and uh, just the basic coke sniffing. Um, yeah, nothing too wild about that. So when Fabio came, did the women just go crazy? The romance cover god Fabio, he came to tattoo too. I held his hand once. He didn't know it was me. Yeah, people went crazy for Fabio. The women went crazy. They would fall all over themselves. I never, I never quite understood it, but uh, people love Fabio. Well, he was a very handsome guy. What made you close? I know Studio 54. I know you were drugged up, everybody. I thought you once told me that it was the insurance money that the premiums gained so high because of the lawsuits. People got so mad they couldn't get in, and they would attack the doorman. There were all these fights and that the insurance had something to do with it. Is that, that my, did I mix that up? No, that's, that's the truth. Um, what happened is I sold Studio 54 for some, a couple of million dollars actually. And uh, 
the guys who bought it defaulted on the payments, and I ended up taking it back. And um, the insurance came up for renewal, and uh, because of all the issues, it was an open lawsuit from David Thompson, the basketball player who claims he was thrown down the stairs. He was six foot four or five, and he was thrown down the stairs by a, uh, a five foot two busboy, which. Uh, <laughs> Seems unlikely, but anyway, there was open open lawsuit for ten million dollars, and between that and other suits and people sued for all kinds of things. Anyway, uh, the insurance premium went up from eighty thousand a year to a million dollars a year. Wow! And I chose not to pay for it and just walked away. In these days of sexual harassment and politically correct behavior. And now that we know that drugs aren't good for you, in a way back in the 80s and the 70s, we really didn't quite understand. No, we didn't. Studio 54 exists today. If it did, it wouldn't be the same because, well, I hear they're doing drugs again. They never stopped, Mark. They never stopped. Well, it went out of style for a while. And then all of a sudden, it's back in style. So the kids are doing it more and more. And they're doing cocaine, and uh, they mostly buy bottles of uh, champagne and and go to clubs that uh, cost a lot more than studio. Smaller clubs. But they still do what they used to do. People are people. And the scene is still a scene. Were women treated differently then? Could you get away with that today? Because I remember it, there was a lot of tugging and touching, and it just seemed like it was a different era. How do you remember the way women were treated? You see well, I think uh, there was, was a different mindset then, and women um, actually liked it. And uh, Liked what? Being touched. But then this is not a workplace situation. It was a nightclub. And the women who come to a nightclub are different than women in suits in the workplace. And so what you see on TV and what you read about now is a whole different story than what it was like for women who came to clubs. You know, don't forget, studio opened at 11 o'clock at night. People who go out at 11 o'clock at night till 5 in the morning are different kind of people than your normal office kind of career people. So it was different. It was different. It was different. It was a different time and a different era. And um, the people who, people looked up to the people who who were the night people. There was something about the aura of a night person. And I remember when I was a night person, people were thinking that uh, I was somebody special because I stayed up all night and uh, had all these wild times. Any regrets, Mark? Any no reg- regrets. None at all. No regrets. Now that I've written the book, I've gotten all that out of my system and uh, there are no regrets. I, I'm thrilled that I did it. I'm thrilled that I wrote the book. A lot of things came out of the book, so there may be a book two. Oh, my goodness. A book two? And I, wait, I hear there's a rumor of a TV series in the offing. We're discussing it. Who do you want to play you, Mark? I haven't decided. It could be, um, depends how old I am and the, um, the screenwriter puts me in. But um, it could be um, 
Ben Stiller, who used to come there as a young boy. <laughs> ah, well, that'd be great, Ben Stiller. Well, Mark, is there anything I've left out? Is there something you'd like to say that I haven't asked? Or is there a last secret thing you want to tell your readers, your audience, your fans? Well, I think that um, the book is fairly complete and um, it tells a real story about a guy who, uh, who was just a plain average businessman who all of a sudden lost his mind and went crazy. And I think that uh, people will enjoy reading the book. Would you suggest that sort of a path to other rich, successful businessmen? Should they lose it and go wild and just take no, a, I don't. I don't. I don't think. I don't think so. It uh, it ended up okay for me, but it, it doesn't like a, end up like that for everybody. Ah, it doesn't. Well, Mark, I really enjoyed this conversation. Wasn't there one person you said if you were away that you would let run Studio Fifty Four? And who was that person? That person was you. Ah! <laughs> I. Um, I always thought, you know, I've been to a number of your parties, Corey, and uh, and you were the ultimate host. And at studio, you had to be a host. You had to fly around the room to say hi to millions of people and give them drinks and drink tickets or whatever. And um, you would be the perfect owner of Studio 54. And so uh, at the time, we didn't have a professional relationship. Uh, we did a tattoo, but uh, but we were just friends, and uh, I always thought that you'd be the guy. Well, Mark, that's a wonderful compliment, and we're both going to sing on the way out. I will survive, but I can't <laughs> sing. So, um, Mark, thank Mark Fleischman, thank you very much. Inside Studio Fifty Four, I recommend it. It's a juicy page turner that takes you back into the days of disco. And uh, it's a book you shouldn't miss.